Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shearer, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and bizarre rulers. On this week's episode, we're tackling the only man to ever hold the role of President in the Confederate States of America, Jefferson Davis. Now, if you don't know, the Confederate States of America, usually called the Confederacy, were the southern states that seceded from the United States before the breakout of the American Civil War in the mid-19th century. Also, unless you're new to the show, of course I'm not going to try to both sides of the Confederacy. After all, I read the short-lived nation's constitution just for this episode so I could actually know what I'm talking about. We'll get more into that later, but I can tell you that, yes, it very much enshrines the right of the Confederate States to own slaves. I mean, yes, the United States Constitution also pretty much guaranteed the right to slavery, too. However, eh, for what it's worth, it never says the word slavery. Not that that's much help. But before anyone goes states' rights on me, please just don't. Unless you've also read the Constitution of the Confederacy, I have more power in this argument than you. Anyways, Jefferson Davis himself is the topic of this episode, not the Constitution he helped protect. He's a very interesting character, mostly because he's the only president the Confederacy ever had. How does one get put into that position? Why was he specifically chosen over any other Southern politician? And what happens to the leader of a nation like the Confederacy when his nation loses the civil war it desperately needed to win in order to gain legitimacy? Don't worry, we'll get into all that in just a moment. Also, fun fact, you would not believe the strange amount of hoops I had to jump through to find info about this guy that wasn't through Wikipedia or the lens of a Confederate sympathizer. So, without further ado, let's begin the story. We're going back in time to the United States and Confederate States of the mid-19th century in... Yes, Davis, it was about slavery. Now, here's the very important question for the background history lesson of this episode. Would it really be great to just hear me go on about the slave trade in America? Trust me, there are better outlets for you to hear about that. So let's just skip forward to how life in general was going for Americans and the slaves owned by them. Well, first, let's get a proper look on the number of slaves we're actually talking about. By the time the American Revolution rolled around and the nation declared its independence, the population was around two and a half million people. About half a million of those people were slaves. So yeah, we're dealing with quite a large number of people who actually didn't have any rights. While slavery was legal in every state, the institution helped form the backbone of the American South, where large plantations made use of slave labor for agriculture. In fact, slaves made up about 40% of the population in the South. But this is a new America, where freedom was supposed to ring from sea to shining sea. I mean, eventually, when America actually got that far. Why would a nation so obsessed with freedom that it still chants about it to this day allow slavery? Well, most slave owners actually decided it was okay because they were interpreting the Bible in a very weird way. 
There's been a lot of theories that slave owners quoted the Bible when asked why they thought it was morally right. The main story used involves Noah of Ark Building fame and his sons. After the flood, Noah grew a vineyard and gets really drunk off the wine he's made. One of his sons, Ham, comes across Noah who got plastered and is laying in his tent without any clothes on. Ham tells his brothers who cover their dad but refuse to look at his body. When Noah comes to, he somehow realizes that Ham alone saw him naked and curses him to be a servant forever. For some reason, at a certain point in time, people decided Ham was black and that's why it was okay to enslave black people. Yes, I'm serious. People use the Bible to justify all kinds of things. I can remember a girl I went to high school with trying to use the Bible during the 2016 US elections to say why it should be okay to be racist against Mexican people. Apparently, love thy neighbor does not mean the people living in the country next to you. Anyways, slavery was very much a do-not-touch issue for the American South when the Constitution was being drafted. However, how to deal with slaves in America, especially in terms of population, was an issue. Population helped deem representation in the American Congress. The South thought slaves should count towards each state's population. The North thought slaves shouldn't count towards the population. But then again, the South had a much higher percentage of slaves than the North and wanted some equal footing in the representation department. In order to reach a compromise, the Constitutional Convention decided that each slave would count as three-fifths of a person as far as the population was concerned. With this compromise, it meant that the American South had much more representation for its freed citizens. While representation is key for any sort of democracy, it very much meant that slavery was now an impossible situation to touch. If the government ever wanted to introduce an amendment to the Constitution banning slavery, it would need three quarters of Congress to vote in favor of the amendment. With the South getting a good deal with the three-fifths compromise, this meant that sort of resolution could never pass. But there were steps in general to limit the institution of slavery in America. In 1794, George Washington signed a bill that prohibited the US from building more ships that could be involved in the slave trade business. It also prevented ships from being changed over into the slave trade from previous business. In 1808, Thomas Jefferson signed another law that completely prohibited the importation of slaves into America. So, in a sense, things were moving in a direction that made it seem like abolition was not a complete fantasy. Now, there's a million and one more reasons why the Civil War began, but we don't have time for all of that. The 1800s were chugging along. The agrarian southern states continuously had to make compromises with the North in order to achieve a more perfect union as the Constitution states. It shouldn't be too surprising that enough eventually became enough. The South would leave the nation, and they'd need a new leader if they wanted to have things go their way. Jefferson Davis was essentially a southerner through and through, even from birth. His father was from Georgia and his mother rose from South Carolina. He was born in Kentucky, which I guess some people consider the Midwest though. 
But as someone who has very particular views over what the Midwest is in the United States, I will say that I consider Kentucky to be a part of the South. He was also named after one of the most famous and beloved men of the American South, President Thomas Jefferson. Davis was born in 1808, meaning he was born towards the tail end of Thomas Jefferson's presidency. When Jefferson was only a couple years old, his family moved to Mississippi where his father bought a plantation and a dozen slaves to work the land. He would go on to attend schools in both Mississippi and Kentucky. While in college in Kentucky, Davis's father died and the Davis family estate was inherited by his oldest brother Joseph Davis who essentially became Jefferson's new father. After college, Davis attended the West Point Military Academy where he allegedly was constantly at odds with the staff. After West Point, he served in the army under future president of the United States, Zachary Taylor. It's okay if you don't know that guy, he was one of those who got buried in the middle between Washington and Lincoln. All the while, he was accompanied by a man named James Pemberton, a slave Jefferson inherited from his father. Davis would go on to marry Taylor's daughter, Sarah. Sarah's father was very reluctant to let the pair marry, and he didn't give the couple his blessing until after Davis left the military in 1835. Unfortunately, soon after they got married, both Jefferson and Sarah caught malaria. Jefferson would live, but his wife would pass away. For the next few years, Jefferson dedicated his life to building up his own plantation, which was actually just a chunk of land given to him by his brother Joseph. This plantation was known as Briarfield Plantation. Joseph was a fairly successful lawyer in Mississippi, and he was pretty well connected with the political scene. This meant that Jefferson was also kept up to date with the latest goings-on in the political field of his home state. In 1840, Jefferson decided to fully get involved with politics when he first started attending political meetings for the Democratic Party. Now, if you don't know the history of American politics, this might sound a little weird to you. Why was Jefferson Davis, a slave owner and future president of the Confederacy, attending Democratic meetings? Well, back in the day, pre-1930s, the Democratic Party was actually the conservative political party of American politics. Making more sense now? In 1843, Davis would finally get his big chance to enter the political landscape. Just one week before the election, a Democrat candidate for a seat in the House of Representatives from Mississippi had to drop out of the race. Davis was suddenly chosen to join the race, putting his name into the public spotlight. Jefferson Davis would actually go on to lose that congressional race. Now, there may have been any reason as to why Davis lost that election, but there was probably some part of it that he was only in it for a week. Nevertheless, Jefferson was determined to continue his life in politics. In 1844, he was chosen as a member of the Electoral College for Mississippi for the presidential election that resulted in a win for Democrat James K. Polk. Also in that year, he met the woman who would be his second wife, Verena Banks Howell. Fun fact about Verena, she was about half his age at only 18 years old. 1845 would be a big year for Davis. First, he married Verena, still weird with the age gap. Second, he was elected as a member of the House of Representatives. He ran a classical 19th century Democrat race. 
He was only for the strictest of readings on the Constitution, opposed the idea of a national bank, see my episode over Andrew Jackson and FDR for why that's a bad political take, and was all in on the phrase that would go on to define his future, states' rights. He also greatly championed going to war with Mexico. Luckily for Davis, that war happened. The Mexican-American War lasted from 1846 to 1848. It all began when the U.S. unlawfully annexed Texas from Mexico. In the eyes of the U.S., they were justified in the annexation after the President of Mexico signed a treaty that gave them that right back in the 1830s. What's messed up about the Treaty of Velasco is that the Mexican President was forced to sign the treaty when he was held hostage by the Army of Texas mostly made up of Americans. This phony treaty gave Texas independence. America would annex the Republic of Texas in 1845. The war itself was a massive partisan issue. By this point, the North-South divide was beginning to reach a turning point that would go on to form one of the many reasons for the Civil War. Democrats in the South wanted Texas to be a state because it would enter the Union as a slave state. The Whig Party, the other U.S. political party of this era, was very hesitant in letting this happen. The Whigs weren't necessarily for abolition, but they did not want to expand the power of slave owners. During the war in June of 1846, Davis decided he wanted to get in on the action. He quit his position as a representative, but in a really bizarre way. He gave his letter of resignation to his brother Joseph and asked him to deliver that letter to Congress, telling Joseph to send it whenever he thought convenient. Davis would then go on to serve under the command of his former father-in-law, Zachary Taylor. He would fight in the Battle of Monterey in September of 1846. After an American victory, he took a two-month break from the war. It was then that he found out that Joseph hadn't sent his resignation in until October, after he had been in the army for quite a few months. The US would go on to win the Mexican-American War. It received a huge swath of land, mostly the modern-day southwestern quarter of the United States. Texas was also fully accepted as a state. President Polk offered Davis a promotion to the rank of Brigadier General, but Davis refused the promotion on the grounds that the Constitution did not give the President that ability. That role belonged to the states. He did, however, accept an offer to him by the Governor of Mississippi. In 1847, Jefferson Davis was chosen as a member of the United States Senate. Now, if you were listening correctly, you'll notice that I did not say Jefferson Davis was elected as a senator to Mississippi. No, he was in fact just chosen for the position by the governor due to the fact that the previous senator passed away. As a senator, Davis continued to champion legislation that would benefit the southern states, specifically when it came to allowing slaves into new territories gained from the Mexican-American War. He continuously fought against what he viewed as the northern states' infringement on southern states' rights, again mostly as it came to owning slaves. In 1851, Davis ran for the governor of Mississippi but was defeated by Senator Henry S. Foote, who ran in the short-lived Unionist Party. 
As he had resigned from the Senate to run for governor, Davis decided not to return to the Senate, instead deciding to once again more devote himself to his plantation. In 1853, Davis was chosen as the Secretary of War under President Franklin Pierce. There wasn't really any major war going on during the Pierce presidency, so Davis was sort of left to deal with other duties. He did, however, oversee the transition of the American Army's use of firearms from muskets to rifles, something he had been a proponent of since the Mexican-American War. So Davis sought to help influence policy. One of his greatest victories was helping pass the Kansas-Nebraska Act. This act saw the creation of the territories of Kansas and Nebraska. However, the act specifically allowed the new territories to decide for themselves whether or not they would allow slavery within their borders. This flew in the face of the Missouri Compromise, a piece of legislation from 1820 that had banned the expansion of slavery above a certain latitude. Well, both Kansas and Nebraska were above that line. The outrage over the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act resulted in the collapse of the Whig Party, which was already fairly fractured between North and South, and saw the rise of the Republican Party as a force of abolitionism in American politics. After the Pierce administration, Davis once more campaigned for his Senate seat in Mississippi and won. By this point, things between the North and South were truly becoming a battleground. A proposed constitution for the Kansas Territory to admit itself into the Union as a slave state failed, mostly due to the arguments of Senator Stephen Douglas from Illinois, who was a Democrat by the way. Douglas's arguments against the Kansas Constitution showed a deepening divide in the Democratic Party, with the Northern Democrats mostly aligning with anti-slavery legislation. In the aftermath, Kansas became a battlefield. Violence erupted that seemed to show the cracks that were building in America. A reckoning would come, but when was anybody's guess? In 1858, after recovering from a prolonged eye infection, Davis went on a tour of the northern states, giving speeches that called for a coming together of the American people. When he returned to the South, the people asked him to clarify his speech as they thought it seemed as if Davis was admitting to being a Northern sympathizer. Davis requalified his statements as meaning he wanted what was best for America but recognized that if things did not go the way the Southern states wanted, especially if an abolitionist was made president, they should find a new path forward outside of the American Union. Then, 1860 rolled around and it was another year of the presidential election. The Democrats were so divided that they could not come together on a single candidate to face the rising star nominated by the Republicans, Illinois statesman Abraham Lincoln. So the Democrats chose two candidates. The Northern Democrats chose Stephen Douglas, the same man who shot down Kansas's pro-slavery constitution. The Southern Democrats chose the current Vice President, John C. Breckinridge. With the Democrat vote split, Lincoln handily won the election. The election occurred in November. By December, the state of South Carolina announced it was seceding from the United States of America. The state of Mississippi seceded on the 9th of January, 1861. 
A couple weeks later, after receiving word of his state's decision, Jefferson Davis retired from the Senate and returned home. By early February, seven states had seceded and formed their own coalition, the Confederate States of America. The new Confederacy drafted a new constitution that heavily drew upon the Constitution of the United States. Like, for real, there are entire passages in the Confederate Constitution that are either essentially the same passage, but with a couple words change, or straight up say, this law will be the same as it was back when we were part of the United States. Major differences including giving states more power over the government of the Confederacy. Other laws enshrined the right for Confederate citizens to own slaves. However, just like the United States had done several decades before, the Confederacy banned the importation of slaves. Davis had been hoping to serve in the new Confederate military. He had even accepted the job of Major General from the Governor of Mississippi after his resignation from the Senate. What came as a shocking surprise to Davis was that the new Confederate Constitutional Convention had unanimously chosen him to be the first president of the new nation. Now you may be wondering why Davis was chosen. Well, he had held several political positions and had always fought for the southern states, which gave him a fair bit of fame in the political sphere. He was also technically known for his military know-how, having fought in the Mexican-American War and served as Secretary of War. But, perhaps most importantly for the current state of the new nation, Davis was not actually all that gung-ho about secession. Yes, he had quit the Senate and returned home after learning his home state of Mississippi left the United States, but Davis had never hoped it would come to that. If someone more moderate when it came to the idea of forming a new nation was chosen as its leader, perhaps that would convince citizens of the Confederacy who were on the fence to wholeheartedly join the cause. Obviously, Davis would accept the role of president. He was inaugurated on the 18th of February, 1861. His vice president was Alexander H. Stevens, a former representative for the state of Georgia in Congress. Like Davis, Stevens was not the biggest supporter of secession. In fact, he had voted against seceding when the topic was brought up. He also fully believed that the Confederacy should ally itself with the United States of America. He saw it as a sinking ship, but one that was still potentially able to be saved. President Davis also decided to try to fill his presidential cabinet with members from the different states of the Confederacy. Davis himself would represent the state of Mississippi. Now, for the most part, the functions of each state in the Confederacy immediately switched alliances to their new nation without the need for violence. However, there were a few holdouts, including several military forts. The most infamous of these military bases was Fort Sumter in South Carolina. Davis sent word to President Lincoln in Washington, D.C. telling him that Fort Sumter needed to be evacuated or the Confederacy would be forced to take action. Lincoln refused to acknowledge Davis's request. Lincoln then sent word to Davis that he would in fact be supplying Fort Sumter with further supplies to deal with any attack from the Confederate military. In April of 1861, Davis ordered for his military to surround Fort Sumter and either get them to surrender or destroy the fort. The military, under Brigadier General P.G.T. Beauregard, surrounded Fort Sumter on the 12th of April. 
the Union soldiers inside the fort once more refused to surrender, so the Confederate army attacked. When news of the attack on Fort Sumter reached Abraham Lincoln, he called for the rebellion against the Union to be suppressed, hoping to get 75,000 people in the nearby southern states who had yet to secede to form a militia against the Confederacy. Lincoln's plan backfired when most refused to send volunteers. And in fact, four more states would go on to secede and join the Confederacy in protest. But with the Battle of Fort Sumter ending in a Confederate victory, all signs of a peaceful coexistence between the two American nations fell apart. The Civil War had begun. Now, Jefferson Davis had once been a man of the military, and many people within the Confederacy definitely assumed he would wholeheartedly accept the role of Commander-in-Chief of the Confederate Army and possibly even fight in the war. Well, that wasn't necessarily the case. Davis decided that the generals he appointed for the Army would know best how to deal with the Union Army. This wasn't always necessarily true. In fact, Davis would almost constantly be at odds with some of the more prominent members of his military. Sometimes he would have to fire a general and replace him with someone new who was actually willing to listen. Other generals would quit when they felt they weren't actually given the autonomy Davis had seemingly decided he wanted to give them. In order to get a more unified leadership of the military under control, President Davis brought in Robert E. Lee. Lee was one of the best military leaders in the state of Virginia, which had seceded after the Battle of Fort Sumter. Like Davis, he was not the most vocal supporter of the Confederacy. It's been said that Lee believed slavery was immoral, but he supported the right to uphold the legality of it. He also owned hundreds of slaves, so like, was he really all that opposed to it? Robert E. Lee has become this massive symbol of the Confederacy, and everyone who still pines for the failed nation seems to think Lee was the greatest military tactician of all time. And I'm not saying they're pulling this out of nowhere because he was a pretty good general, but I mean the Confederacy did lose the Civil War. Davis and Lee were very close throughout the Civil War, with the President first choosing Lee as a military advisor before eventually becoming the General-in-Chief of the Confederate Army. In 1862, Jefferson Davis was inaugurated as President of the Confederate States of America. But wait, didn't we already do that? Well, in 1861, Davis was chosen as the Provisional President under the Provisional Constitution. But by 1862, the Confederacy had drafted up what they assumed to be their permanent constitution, meaning Davis had to be inaugurated as the official president of his nation. In his inauguration speech, Davis compared the Confederacy to the original 13 colonies of America fighting for independence. He even went so far as to say they were fighting with the same spirit as George Washington. Fun fact, Davis's inauguration was held on Washington's birthday. Also a side note, but yeah, I think Washington probably would have been on the side of the Confederacy if he was still alive at the time. I mean, the guy owned slaves, he ran a plantation, he lived in Virginia. All signs point to yes. Davis also acknowledged that the war had not been going in the South's favor. 
they had suffered defeats and been forced to shake up military leadership. There was also a fun section I enjoyed where he said he fully believed the state of Maryland would eventually join the Confederacy. It never did. But Jefferson Davis fully believed that the South was capable of winning the Civil War. Then, on New Year's Day of 1863, Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, demanding the freedom of slaves in the United States of America. I want to take a step back a bit to look at some bigger picture things and then we'll get back to Jefferson Davis. First, let's take a look at Abraham Lincoln, very briefly though because I might do an episode about him in the future. Lincoln wasn't actually all that great a guy, at least not as good-hearted and pure as America wants him to be. Like, for listeners not living in the United States, when you're a child in the American school system, you're essentially taught that Abraham Lincoln might as well have been the first non-racist white man. But what were his views on slavery and just black Americans in general? Well, Lincoln was one of the founders of the Republican Party, so he was in some way against the institution of slavery. However, we should look at a series of debates he held with Stephen Douglas, yeah, he's showing up again, when both men were running for senator of Illinois. In one of his speeches, Lincoln fully acknowledges that he believes black Americans should be entitled to the rights endowed on Americans in the Declaration of Independence. However, he also fully acknowledged that he would not try to introduce legislation to free slaves in states that wanted to keep them. He also admitted that even if slavery was ended and all black Americans were free, white Americans would still hold all the power. And Lincoln wasn't necessarily opposed to that. At the end of the day, the Emancipation Proclamation was not Lincoln's dream project. It was a speech he was forced to give in order to make the other Republicans happy. And even then, at the end of the day, it wasn't necessarily this idea of moral integrity. It was the Union saying, Hey, Confederacy, look what we did. We're gonna win this war and bring you back in. And when we do, you'll no longer have slaves. Like, don't get me wrong. The Emancipation Proclamation is one of the most important speeches in American history. Slavery needed to be ended. But it wasn't a speech of pure intentions by Ol' Honest Abe. But now let's go global. How did the rest of the world, and by world I am here mostly meaning Europe, react to the Civil War? Most of Europe was surprised at the course America had taken, splitting in half and fighting each other, that is. Most were on the side of the Union, having established relationships with the United States of America, not the Confederate States. Some leaders were also straight up just on close enough terms with Lincoln that it was a no-brainer. The only nation to have mixed feelings, which is stretching it a bit, was the UK. The UK imported a lot of cotton from the American South, meaning they would like to keep that system going. However, they didn't care whether it was the United States supplying the cotton or the Confederacy. However, a lot of Irish volunteers, Ireland being a part of the UK at the time, sailed across the Atlantic Ocean to fight for the Union. The only nation that was pretty unanimously anti-Confederacy was the Ottoman Empire, 
and that's because the Ottomans were the cotton capital of the region, meaning they were fine if the cotton-producing region of America kinda just collapsed. Meanwhile, Mexico was backing away from things. They had only just gotten out of a war with America and weren't too keen on getting involved with another. Also, they had a new war brewing with France trying to invade and take over. Canada, which was under British control at this time, was very pro-Union and many volunteers crossed the border to fight against the Confederacy. So yeah, things weren't looking too good for Jefferson Davis and the Confederates. The North was continuing to gain traction in the war. The South didn't really have any allies. It was only a matter of time before things fully fell apart. So yeah, the Civil War was going very poorly for the Confederacy. Davis knew this but refused to back down. The Union continued to advance into the South, taking out several key Confederate cities. The only saving grace was that whenever a northern general went up against Robert E. Lee directly, it seemed that the best they could do was end in a stalemate. Even then, Davis was hoping that if the South just refused to surrender, the Union would eventually give up. This was very clearly not the case. He needed more soldiers, and it was possible he would have to compromise the values of the Confederacy in order to achieve this. Davis started sending diplomats to Europe in the hopes of gaining allies. He even offered a compromise of eventually emancipating the slaves of the Confederacy if European nations supported the South. And eventually, Davis started allowing black Americans to fight in the Confederate Army. By the end of 1864, the Confederate Congress passed a decree that allowed black Americans to serve. Individual states could decide on whether or not slaves could serve, some just leaving the decision to the slave owners themselves. However, the Davis administration only ended up accepting black soldiers who were free citizens or slaves who had been freed specifically to enlist. But it was all too little too late. The North continued with a string of victories, with the ultimate Confederate defeat happening when the Union broke through Robert E. Lee's army and took the city of Richmond, Virginia, a key location that had long been held safe. Lee surrendered to the North on the 9th of April, 1865. A week later, on the 16th of April, Abraham Lincoln died after being shot by Confederate spy John Wilkes Booth. His vice president, Andrew Johnson, took over as president. Jefferson Davis was accused of hiring the hit on Lincoln and a bounty that amounts to over $3 million in modern US money was put on his head. Davis was still unwilling to fully let go after Lee surrendered. He wanted his generals to continue fighting, especially further west. When Davis's high-ranking generals informed their president that there was not really any more they could do, the Confederate president finally realized that the war was lost. And along with the loss was the fate of the Confederacy. On the 5th of May, 1865, Davis met with his presidential cabinet and got underway to dissolve the Confederate States of America. Four days later, he was captured by the Northern Army and imprisoned on the grounds of treason. In late May of 1865, Davis was imprisoned in Fort Monroe in Virginia. 
Originally, his cell was on constant guard and Davis's only personal possession was a Bible. Over the next year and a half, his condition slowly improved until September of 1866 he was allowed to live with his wife in a four-room apartment. And as someone currently living in a one-bedroom apartment, that sounds a bit spacious for someone imprisoned for treason. However, when the Johnson administration eventually tried to put him on trial for treason, he was released on bail that was paid for by Southern citizens still loyal to the former president. By 1869, all charges against Davis had been dropped. After being released, Davis found it hard to find a new career, not that he wasn't given plenty of offers. He just wanted a job he felt was proper for a former congressman and president. So with all that said, he became the president of a health insurance firm in Tennessee. Yeah, real prestigious, my guy. Anyways, Davis continued to maintain a large role in Southern society for the rest of his life. He always proclaimed that he had done nothing wrong and was just doing what he believed was right. He also spoke out saying that the Confederacy would never have surrendered if the people knew that black Americans would eventually be given the right to vote. Just so you know that Davis is still an awful human being. He was also a firm supporter of the Lost Cause myth, which is basically Confederate supporters slang for, Nuh-uh, the Civil War wasn't actually about slavery, it was all about states' rights. Okay, yeah, the South wanted its rights to be recognized, but the most major right it wanted recognized was the right to own slaves. Anyway, Jefferson Davis passed away on the 6th of December, 1889. He was diagnosed with bronchitis after he had fallen ill during a trip from New Orleans, where he was currently residing, to Mississippi, but refused to see a doctor until it was probably too late. He was laid in state in the New Orleans City Hall. Over 200,000 people came to mourn him. After that, several southern states argued that they should be his final resting place, but Verena Davis eventually decided that her husband should be buried in Richmond, Virginia. Over the years, many memorials were built to remember Jefferson Davis. By the turn of the 21st century, there were almost 150 memorials to him throughout the United States. In more recent years, several of those have been removed. Good. I know there's an argument people always make that goes like, oh, but we need those memorials to remember history. Buddy, we have so many ways to remember history these days. We have podcasts like this one, not that I'm saying this is the best history show on the internet. We don't need statues of racist slave owners, especially one that happened to be the leader of the Confederacy. I won't argue against the fact that Jefferson Davis was an impressive man. Not a good man, but an impressive one. He had the unenviable task of basically trying to create an entire government from scratch once he was chosen as president. The CSA had no army or treasury. Davis had to get his Congress moving quickly to get that up and running. It's just a shame that someone with that much political know-how was on the wrong side of history. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. 
Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and follow the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. Next time, we're going to visit a very strange time for the Roman Empire. It was a moment where it seemed as if the Empire might be shattered into different pieces for good. Well, before that kinda ended up being the case anyways. But the main focus will be on one woman who stood above everyone else in this situation. Zenobia. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. (laughs) 